Say You Want a Revolution, Episode 3, read for you by the author. Chapter 31 Donnie lay awake in the semi-darkness, surprised when the hum of ballast and the overhead fluorescent lights signaled they were about to switch on. He no longer had his watch, but by the looks of the pre-dawn sky that he could glimpse through a tall, narrow window in the corner of his cell, he guessed that the time was almost six o'clock in the morning. He could hear stirrings in the cell nearby. Then, after a few minutes, he heard a cart rolling down the aisle outside his door. He could smell the aroma of boiled eggs, and he heard the clamor of people scuffling nearby. He jumped slightly at the hollow metal bang of a nearby door. He could only guess that was someone's simple means of protest or an aggressive ceremony attached to retrieving breakfast. He waited at his door hungrier than he had felt in months, likely because he had been too upset to eat anything yesterday. Yet it may well have been resignation to the fact that he was here and there was no likely change coming. A small opening cut into the cell door slipped noisily to the side, revealing the source of the hollow metal bang from moments before. Absent any exchange of words or formality, he took a brown paper bag that had been unceremoniously thrust through the slot. A small viewing window was his only glimpse into the hallway. His eyes met with the guard's eyes for a fraction of a second. The woman was dark brown, with piercing dark eyes. Her hair was pulled back severely and streaked with a patch of gray down one side. Her long, manicured fingernails were artfully painted in swirls of psychedelic patterns and covered with a dusting of gold glitter. She looked away quickly and moved down the hall. Donnie didn't give her another thought. Instead, he hurried to sit on his bunk, tore open his brown paper bag, and began to eat ravenously. Afterwards, he leaned back against the block wall and waited, wondering if this was going to be the way he existed for the next seven years of his life. He dozed, woke, dozed again, and woke again, then paced the circuit of his six-by-eight cell for what must have been an hour. His mind was busy fumbling with thoughts in the random flurry of churning images. Stacy, Celeste, his mother, his brother, his sister-in-law, and Dak constantly shifted through his thoughts. Each of them was jockeying for position. Disrupting his musings, Donnie heard movement in the hallway again. As he listened to the footfalls echoing in the distance, he lost himself in the anguish of his new existence. He was actually caught off guard when he heard the metal bolt of his door lock slide open. He sat motionless as he watched the door swing outward. A slightly built man with hearing aids looped over each ear and facial features that bore the evidence of reconstructive surgery mumbled a command. Stand up and turn around. Hands behind your back. Donnie stood and faced the man. I have an arm injury. There's a note of my father handcuffed me in front. The torque will re-injure my arm. I don't have your file. Put your hands behind your back. The man barked. Donnie sat back on his metal bed. Then you better damn sight get an organ grinder in here with my file, because I'll be damned if I'm going to let one of you monkeys re-injure my arm. The guard fidgeted with his belt and lightly brushed his hand across the top of his radio. 
His face was contorted with anger, and Donnie could see the blood rising up beneath the surface of the scar tissue on his neck. He walked into the hall and slammed the metal door shut with a bang. Several minutes later, a large, burly black man with a shaved head and angry black eyes entered the room. The slightly built guard was on his heels. Donnie stood quickly and measured the newcomer. Both men focused on Donnie with steely, hardened eyes. You give my man trouble, the burly man growled. Donnie didn't shift his glance. No, I told him I have an injured arm and I cannot put it behind my back. There's information in my file that will explain that. We don't have your file, barked the guard. Then get it or find someone who does, demanded Donnie. I can wear waist shackles if you need me to. That's no problem. However, I can't put my arm behind my back without the risk of permanent injury. The black man studied him for another few seconds then broke into a wide smile. Why don't you just say that? No problem. He turned and glanced at the smaller guard. Rambo, get our guest some waist irons and let's get him the hell out of here. He said, gesturing to Donnie. Donnie waited patiently until the men returned, then cooperated, allowing them to secure his waist chain, then further secure his wrists. As he was cuffed, the man who was referred to as Rambo gave the metal restraints one more tightening ratchet than necessary. Donnie felt the metal bite into his skin. He didn't flinch, just stared coldly at the guard, who diverted his eyes and smiled slightly. Donnie was escorted through the corridors of the special housing unit and onto a rear loading dock where another caged van was waiting. The van pulled away from the building and onto what looked like a rural service road. They passed alongside a 12-foot-high cyclone fence with three strands of razor wire on top. Inside the fence was a 10-foot-wide gravel track. Multiple coils of razor wire were spooled along the ground. Then there was another 10-foot-high fence with a single strand of electric wire on top. Another gravel roadway demarcated the boundary of the inside fence. The van passed several older houses and an abandoned guard tower, but always flanked the fence. They hadn't traveled more than one and a half miles around the compound before the van turned into a virtually abandoned parking lot and crossed to turn onto a one-way street where they stopped in front of a white brick building marked Administration. Across the street was a dormitory-style building marked Camp that set apart from several other buildings. Men in green uniforms moved about freely. Donnie was removed from the van under armed guard and guided into the administrative building where he was ushered through a metal turnstile into a metal cage and across the grounds and into the basement of another older building marked R&D. Once inside, the shackles were removed. Donnie joined a group of 11 other men who were waiting for someone or something to happen. The men didn't speak. They stood and waited. Despite the apparent bravado of those slumped against the wall, there was a discernible smell of fear in the room. Shifting glances and diverted stares only reinforced what he already knew. Uncertainty was settling over everyone. Finally, a short African-American man entered the room. He was solidly built, but proportionately small. Donnie guessed he was five foot two or three inches tall at the most. 
His hair was perfectly styled close to his scalp. His shoes were meticulously shined, and his civilian clothing bore the creases and alignment of former military. He studied each man's face for a couple seconds before he spoke. You're here because you committed a crime, and that's on you. He pointed with a straight finger toward the crowd. That's why you're going to wear underpants of 15 sloppy-ass mothers wore before you wore them. He pointed again. I don't want to hear anything about your case. Nobody wants to hear about your case. We don't care. You're here for punishment, not friendship or counseling. The convicts in here are not your friends. Now his hands were making wide, sweeping gestures. They'll use you if they can. Then they'll kick you to the curb, so don't be stupid. He pointed across the room to the door marked laundry. Line up. When the man opens the door, tell him your sizes. Then make a line over there for your picture. He gestured to another corner of the room where a man stood with a camera tripod and photo gear. I have a case manager from each of the housing units in the hall. They'll call your names. When you hear your name, get in line, and don't talk unless the staff member talks to you. The men silently shuffled into line at the laundry door. Chapter 32 It took almost two hours for the small retinue of new inmates to finish their processing and gather in the hallway corridor. Most of them shuffled nervously as they waited to be told where to go or what to do next. Some of the veterans of incarceration continued to feign false bravado, making it clear they were not new to this environment or to the system. Donnie made a quick inventory. Out of the 12 inmates, there were two Caucasians, three Hispanic, and the remaining seven were African American or Caribbean. The things they shared in common, however, were white t-shirts, khaki pants, a brown cloth jacket, and blue bus shoes. Donnie made the mental note that incarceration had become America's greatest equalizer. No color here, only numbers, he mused. It didn't take long for three individuals in civilian clothing to enter the corridor from the far end of the hallway. Without any explanation, they alternately bellowed the names of the waiting inmates, reading from a computer-generated list. Automatically, the men responded as they were called and lined up in an orderly fashion behind the appropriate person. One of the three, a tall black man, positioned himself at the center of the hallway. On his right stood a lean and very attractive black woman. On his left stood a short, petite white woman. He raised his voice to quiet the murmurs and shuffling as the men made their way to their appropriate lines. I'm Mr. Barker. This is Miss Stevens, he said, pointing to the woman on his right. This is Miss True. We are your counselors and case managers. That, however, means nothing, because right now you got nothing coming. So hold your questions, keep your mouth shut, and follow the leader. You're going to your quarters, and hopefully we can get you situated before lunch. The trio turned and walked abreast through a wide metal door and out onto the compound. Once in the brightness of the day, the newcomers all noticed there was nobody around with the exception of two inmates at the far end of the open courtyard. 
Those two were pushing large laundry carts toward a single-story building at the furthest end of several dormitory-style buildings on the main quadrant. At about the midpoint of the quad, each of the groups split off in separate directions. Donnie studied his surroundings, taking in the smell of freshly mowed grass and the 10 and 12 foot high fences at the perimeter. He barely noticed the group was entering an old two-story building that resembled barracks from the World War II era. The troop came to a hasty stop once inside the foyer. The air was stifling and it didn't take a rocket scientist to realize there was no air conditioning, just stale odors and thick, humid air. As the group huddled together in the entryway, Miss Stevens scanned up and down the staircase. In short order, a compact black man quickly made his way toward the group. His bald head glistened with beads of sweat. He carried a binder under his arm like a student headed for class. As he continued heading their way, it was apparent from his build that he was a tough customer, yet his tight hips swayed with a suggestion that he might also be something other than one of the guys. Muscles bulged and rippled under the shoulder straps of his wife-beater t-shirt, and his oversized gray jersey shorts showed well-muscled calves. Nevertheless, there was still something peculiar. I got him, Miss Stevens, he said in a high and exaggerated feminine voice. She didn't respond, just trudged up four steps to a landing, where a door led to what Donnie imagined was the staff administrative offices. Follow me, instructed their guide. I'm Tyree, call me Ty. I'll show you where you're bunking, at least until we can get you some more permanent rooms. Ty made an immediate about-face and sashayed back the way he had come. The quartet followed. Once they reached the bottom landing, Donnie noticed the stairs from other prisoners. Six or seven men, who were gathered in the TV room, turned in their seats to watch the newcomers make their way toward the stairs. At the far end of this lower-level room, three card tables crowded into an area that would have comfortably accommodated two. The men stopped their games and watched the parade. Donnie moved tentatively, still looking back and forth. He was pulled from his inspections when he heard his name echo loudly through the hollowness of the almost empty room. Twenty or more bunk beds filled a large open space opposite the card tables. A makeshift aisle stretched down the center, separating the beds and lockers, which were double-stacked at the foot of each bunk. A bathroom and telephone were situated off to the right. Back yon the beach, 56 upper, right here. Ty pointed to a bunk that seemed too close to the low ceiling and ductwork above the bed. Donnie didn't object. He tossed his things on the top of the bunk and opened the locker, noticing immediately that it needed cleaning. Two African-American men stepped out of the TV room and watched Donnie's every movement. Ty started back down the aisle with the other men in tow when a white man stepped from between two of the beds and cut him off. Donnie noticed the man was older, perhaps in his late 40s. However, his back and arms suggested he was in good physical condition. Ty pulled up and gave the man a hard look. Is anybody in 56 lower, Ty? He asked while pressing a hand to the smaller man's chest. Not yet, responded Ty. Then put him in the bottom bunk. Can't you see the guy's limping? He must have a hurt hip or leg. Your leg hurt? Asked Ty, directing the question to Donnie. Yeah. You have to speak up, 
Go ahead and take the bottom bunk. I'll change the bed book. Ty strode past the older man. You trying to make friends, Jackson? He asked slyly. The older man returned Ty's look with contempt. Ty, I'm just trying to be neighborly. You know better than that. Mm-hmm, replied Ty as he kept on walking. Donnie studied the white man. He had salt and pepper hair that was cut relatively short and combed straight back. His goatee was neat, but not so sculpted that it looked pretentious. He was solidly built. Donnie guessed six feet tall and about 190 pounds. The man had a body much younger than his years. Donnie moved toward the man with an extended hand. You're Jackson? Yeah. Donnie started to speak. I'm Donald Beck. Jackson interrupted. I was hoping you'd come here. We'll talk later. Put your stuff in the locker. Jackson tossed a combination lock to Donnie. The combo's on the back. They're going to call us out for lunch in about 20 minutes. Make your bed. I'll be back in a few minutes. Donnie put himself to the task, struggling with his bed and using the others in the rows as models for what he was supposed to do. A few minutes later, Jackson approached carrying a metal folding chair, a pillow, and a pillowcase stuffed with a variety of items, which he poured out on the bed. Included were an old pair of tennis shoes, a new pair of shower shoes, soap, a comb, toothbrush, and toothpaste. Donnie immediately grew suspicious. I don't need this, really. I'm okay, he insisted. Jackson looked at Donnie with cold, hard eyes. If you think I'm hitting on you, you're dead wrong. This is what we do. We take care of each other. We're in the low. If a guy comes in here and he wants romance, it's here, but that's not me. I'm just trying to help you get settled. So all you need to say is thank you. Then when the next guy comes in, you help him the same way I helped you with no strings attached. I'm sorry, I didn't... Don't mention it. That's a common misconception. Let's go eat. Just lock your stuff up or I won't be here when we get back. Donnie dumped his new treasure in the locker, peeled the tape with the combination written on it from the back of the combination, and locked and secured the locker. Then he followed Jackson to the dining hall. Lee Hall, their unit, had already been called. Not surprisingly, there was an extra seat at the table where Jackson sat. But Donnie waited until Jackson invited him. Then he took a seat. The men ate in silence. After lunch, Jackson recommended that they stay out for the next hour until they could re-enter the building on a later 10-minute move. Since Donnie didn't know what a 10-minute move was, he listened carefully while Jackson explained that inmates could only move between buildings or locations during the 10 minutes prior to each hour. Otherwise, they had to remain wherever they were located. For the next 55 minutes, Jackson explained the rules and how things worked. The two men leisurely walked the track, waiting for the next 10-minute move. Chapter 33 For the next two days, Jackson kept a respectable distance. Donnie suspected the distance was more about not crowding than anything else. Besides, Donnie had a full schedule of short briefings 
from various department heads associated with the prison facilities, the chapel service, the commissary, and every other department providing services or doling out discipline. They called it Arrival and Orientation, or A&O for short. However, Donnie quickly discovered that the purpose of these information summaries was not a kindness or honest orientation to prison life, but a process designed to remove any excuse for not knowing the rules and regulations. It became instantly apparent that some of the staff would use this information to demonstrate their control. In fact, during the first session of the first day, the speaker, a lieutenant with a wannabe cop swagger and the evidence of a nasty adolescent battle with acne, made that very point. With punctuating raps on the podium, he stated that inmates were required to attend A&O and that each man would be held accountable for all of the information offered by every speaker. Then, as the drone of introductions began, the lieutenant took a position to stand watch in the back of the room. It didn't take long for two heads to bob, the first victims of heat and boredom. The lieutenant sprang into action without mercy. The two inmates were cited for disobeying a direct order, handcuffed and carted off to the hole, where they would be isolated in the shoe where Donnie had spent his first night. If there had been any question, that single act cemented the them-and-us relationship between guards and prisoners. Donnie knew right away that the cops, which is what the inmates called prison guards, were not his friends. At the end of the second day of orientation, Donnie was exhausted. The heat and the lack of sleep from the noise, which came with being on the busiest part of the beach near the bathroom, and the growing emotional avalanche of his present reality was beginning to wear on him. Donnie needed to get somewhere by himself. He needed a few minutes to be alone, decompress, and think. It was just past three in the afternoon. The daily afternoon count was at four o'clock. Donnie grabbed his towel and toiletries from the locker and headed to the bathroom for a shower. He needed the solitude to collect himself, and he wasn't all that surprised to find one of the showers empty at this time of day. Donnie put his things on the small shelf and hesitated for a moment. Oddly, he couldn't remember if he'd locked his locker. He didn't think so. He wondered for a couple of minutes if that was really necessary. Then he decided he'd better check if only as a precaution. Besides, it was only 20 paces from the shower to his bunk. Donnie hurried back into the dorm. As soon as he turned a corner, Donnie saw him, a tall, thin black man dumping the remainder of Donnie's few possessions into a pillowcase. His first instinct was rage. In a split second of reconnaissance, he surveyed the room and saw another black man, a short and stocky fellow with close-cropped hair standing sentry with his eyes on the TV room. A slightly built Asian man was on the other side of a concrete column watching the steps. Donnie walked up on the back of the locker and slammed his fist into the back of the open door. It crashed into the tall young black man's arm with a violent hollow pop. Donnie saw the shock register on the young man's face as he dropped the bag instinctively and started to try to dash away. Donnie brought his uninjured right hand down hard on the taller man's shoulder. It was a powerful blow and Donnie felt the man's body sag. Out of the corner of his eye he saw the other two men coming in his direction. Donnie braced himself for their attack as the taller man went sprawling on the floor at his feet. The shorter black man was on him first 
his fists pumping furiously. Donnie tried to block the incoming salvo, but because he had to turn to protect his left arm and hip, the punches rained down. He felt hammer fists land on his stomach and chest. Then he saw one destined for his chin. He leaned away with a fraction of an inch to spare. Then he snapped forward and threw his right forearm. His elbow connected solidly with the man's forehead and temple. The man sank to his knees. Donnie turned quickly, expecting the Asian man to launch himself into the attack. Instead, he saw Jackson standing behind the younger man, his right arm still in place around the unconscious youngster's neck in a classic ranger chokehold. Donnie knew that Jackson must have moved quickly and precisely to execute the choke without a scuffle. Jackson dropped the young man to the ground. Several others were watching from the TV room and pool tables. You'll want to lock up when you leave your locker, Jackson reminded, smiling wryly. Yeah, I forgot. Well, no harm. In fact, it may have helped send an early message. Enjoy your shower. Donnie secured his locker and hurried back into the bathroom. The taller of the three would-be thieves was already trying to revive his compatriots. Donnie turned and glared at him. If any of my stuff turns up missing, I'll be looking for you. If I find you, you won't walk away next time. The young man's eyes widened. It wasn't the threat that worried him. It was the cold, ice-blue stare in Donnie's eyes. There was no doubt the man was serious. Chapter 34 Three days later, Donnie finally finished with the torture of A&O. Each night, he resolved to get as much sleep as possible to avoid raising the ire of the Gestapo lieutenant. Yet he couldn't resist writing letters to Stacy in hopes they would be forwarded to her new address. At mail call, he only half listened for his name, without any real expectation of an answer. He hoped against hope that she hadn't merely stolen his money and left him alone and abandoned. However, in his heart of hearts, he knew the truth. Stacy was gone. That didn't really bother him. In some ways, he was even relieved. It would be easier to do his time without Stacy hanging on. Besides, he really didn't trust her anyway. The whole episode with the hot tub and the barbecue and the honey beer still wormed its way through his thoughts. It wasn't lost on him that the issue was never addressed and never resolved. Donnie just tried not to dwell on it. In all of his letter writing, Donnie also sent visit forms to Celeste. His hope was that she would complete them and one day come to visit. Yet after the reality of sentencing, Donnie doubted Celeste would continue to nurture any interest in a relationship. The sentence was too long for a young woman, especially one who only recently became an acquaintance. Perhaps they could be friends, he mused. Surely he'd never ask her for anything more, not with a 96-month sentence in his future. Heck, even with maximum good time and halfway house, he didn't expect to be back on the street for five years and eight months. It wouldn't be fair to ask a young, attractive woman to put herself on the shelf for such a long wait. Donnie's anguish over the prospect of lost love and lost friends drove him deeper into his funk. Fortunately, it was something Jackson recognized. As soon as he saw the telltale signs in Donnie's eyes, he started to work. Donnie didn't even realize he was being counseled until Jackson revealed his plan. 
It began on the third day of orientation. After the evening meal, Jackson brought Donnie lifting gloves and a water bottle. Come on, we're going to start rehabbing your arm, Jackson said as he tossed the gloves at Donnie's chest. Donnie caught the gloves in midair. I'll rehab at my own pace, he responded coolly. No, sir, growled Jackson in reply. You'll start right now and you'll trust me explicitly. You'll recognize immediately that I'm an expert. I'm concerned for your recovery and I'm not going to always be around to save your ass. So, while we're here, I'm your guru. Donnie studied the seriousness in the man's expression. He was old enough to be Donnie's father. And if Donnie had known his father, he suspected it's exactly how the conversation might have gone. Donnie allowed himself to smile. Okay, since you put it that way. That evening, they worked out with very light weights. When they got back into the residence hall, Jackson told Donnie to follow him to his room. Jackson was in a two-man cube, but the top bunk was empty. He unlocked his locker and removed the canister of coffee creamer. Without speaking, he measured two large spoonfuls of powder into each of two glasses, then poured water from a jug and stirred. He handed one to Donnie. What's this? I don't drink coffee creamer. Protein. You should take protein within 15 minutes following your workout. Responded Jackson. Yeah, I know that, but where did you get protein? Asked Donnie. The alarm in Donnie's voice was obvious. Donnie, despite what they told you in orientation, everything you could possibly want is available in here. Protein is nothing, but do yourself a favor. Don't ask so many questions. Donnie hurriedly chugged the shake and set the glass on Jackson's table. Thanks for the workout. Donnie turned and started to leave. Not so fast. I know you're wondering what this is all about. I promise I'll tell you in good time. I need to get to know you better, and I want you to get to know me, then we'll talk. Until then, I'll train you, rehab your arm and leg, provide you with protein and supplements, and make sure you eat right. I bought us two salmon steaks for dinner. Get your shower and come on back here by 7 o'clock. That's the latest we want to eat. Tomorrow, I'll arrange to have you moved in as my celly. Donnie looked at him suspiciously again. Don't even think it, Donnie. I'm not the least bit attracted to you sexually. I don't do men. I need you to help me with something. When the time is right, I'll ask. If you're uncomfortable with my request, you'll say no, and I'll never raise the issue again. It's that easy. Something about the man put Donnie at ease. Fair enough, he replied as he turned to leave. For the next several days, they fell into a routine. They worked out after the dinner hour, they showered, and then ate another meal before heading off early to bed. Towards the end of the following week, Jackson arranged for Donnie to work with him at the facilities building. At 8 o'clock in the morning, they reported to their boss, Bob Norman, a fleshy-faced correctional officer with more than 15 years with the Bureau of Prisons as a facilities manager. Donnie discovered pretty quickly that Jackson's $500 per month supplement checks to the Norman household ensured that Jackson got the best work assignments plus an unobstructed pipeline for whatever else he needed, as long as it didn't include drugs or firearms. Once Jackson introduced Donnie, Norman put them on a duty roster. The tacit understanding was that neither Donnie nor Jackson would do any more than report in every morning, then leave. 
After a quick tour of the building, the two men left and started across the compound. Despite the strict regulation about 10-minute moves, Donnie and Jackson went to the track and walked. Over the next few days, Jackson began to introduce a little more rigorous workout regimen. Gradually, they introduced knee bends and weighted squats, but most of the time was spent stretching. Jackson pushed Donnie tirelessly, and without his realizing it, Donnie's focus shifted from feeling sorry for himself to improving his health. It was two weeks before Donnie received confirmation that Celeste's visit form was approved and her phone number was on his authorized list. He called her that night for the first time to tell her about the visiting regulations and test the water to see if she was even interested in coming. At least he would know if she wanted to come and visit. His heart leapt when he heard her voice. By the time she pushed the button to accept the call, her voice was tremulous with tears. For several moments, Donnie stammered through the conversation, focused on answering questions about what the prison was like, while she alternatively sobbed and sighed into the handset. Finally, he asked her to come and visit. Celeste chuckled through her tears. <laughs> Just try to stop me. I'm on your visit list now. When the phone beeped, indicating only one minute remained of their 15-minute call, Donnie began to despair over the coming separation. It must have been in his voice because Celeste pressed him for when he could call again. She quickly blurted out that she had a trip for the next two days, but she was able to give him a schedule before the phone cut off. Donnie didn't know when she was coming, but he knew for certain she would come soon. Donnie excitedly pressed Jackson for the details surrounding inmate visits, and Jackson explained how everything worked. He even recommended that Donnie give him Celeste's telephone number so Jackson's girlfriend could call her and plan to pick her up at the airport and walk her through the process. In his excitement, Donnie rattled off the number. Later, Jackson made a phone call to arrange for Donnie's visit. For Jackson, five years of waiting and preparation was about to pay off. Chapter 35 Donnie and Celeste talked frequently following her return from the flight that took her back and forth to Denver. Joanne, Jackson's female friend, also spoke with Celeste several times during the next eight days. It was obvious that Joanne's goal was to develop a friendship, and Celeste felt like she really needed a friend who understood what she and Donnie were going through. What Celeste didn't know was that the friendship was in response to Jackson's instructions. In fact, that was all he said. Make friends. Joanne didn't question. She knew it was important. Otherwise, Jackson wouldn't have pressed her into service. She hadn't seen or spoken him since her uncle Anton was transferred to West Virginia. That was almost two years ago. Uncle Anton's last instruction was to go if Jackson called and do whatever he wanted. She probably should have been nervous or frightened. However, the possible element of risk and the cloak-and-dagger nature of the meeting gave her an adrenaline rush. Joanne waited nervously as the days ticked by. Her mother, Maria Gelati, formerly Capese, didn't dare mention anything to Anton over the phone. All of his calls were monitored. All of his letters were censored. She would have to make the drive to West Virginia when she knew what was expected. That would be some time after Joanne returned from visiting Jackson. 
The anticipation had them both on edge. Chapter 36 Celeste's return trip from Boston, the second leg of her overnight Washington to Boston round trip, brought her back to Washington National at 10 minutes after 8 on Saturday morning. She went straight from that flight to a Washington to Richmond commuter flight and boarded immediately. No sooner than the commuter flight took off, it landed in Richmond at 20 minutes after 9. Celeste was the second person off the plane, the benefit of riding in the jump seat. The first person off the plane was the elderly woman Celeste pushed in a wheelchair. Frankly, if it hadn't been for the fact that there was a waiting nurse attendant at the baggage claim, both Celeste and the wheelchair occupant would have likely been the last persons off the plane. Celeste seized the opportunity to help someone else and help herself at the same time. It was probably because Celeste appeared to be a healthcare worker that Joanne looked past her and began to study the rest of the approaching passengers. Celeste studied the faces of those waiting and hoped she could put a face to the friendly voice of those numerous phone conversations. In her mind's eye, she pictured Joanne as a mature, slightly pudgy woman in her early to mid-forties. Unfortunately, nobody in the waiting queue seemed to fit that description. Celeste leaned on the handles of the wheelchair, stepped onto her tiptoes, and strained to see over the crowd. She had described herself to Joanne, but Joanne never described herself to Celeste. The nurse attendant approached and took control of the patient. Celeste and the woman exchanged well wishes and said goodbye. Again, Celeste closed her eyes for a moment to try and put a face to the pleasant-sounding voice over the phone. Since Donnie described Jackson as in his late 40s, the same image of Joanne as a short, pudgy matron kept creeping into her mind. Nobody in the waiting area seemed to fit the bill. Celeste was intensely studying faces when she felt a light tap on her shoulder. Are you Celeste? The young woman asked. Celeste nodded absently. Joanne was not anything like she expected. She looked like an exotic dancer, a tall platinum blonde with pancake makeup, dark long lashes, and almost a childlike smile and the perkiest, oversized, probably augmented breasts she had ever seen. Celeste tried not to allow her shock to register, yet she wondered, as Joanne hugged her warmly, just who Donnie was mixed up with. Since Celeste was carrying her overnight bag, the girls didn't have to lose any time waiting at the baggage carousel. They hurried to the parking lot where Joanne led the way to her white Cadillac Escalade. The car was beautiful. It glistened with highly polished gold accents and smelled sweetly of new leather and strawberry air freshener. Celeste didn't ask any questions, but it didn't stop her from wondering. It was a lot of vehicle for a young woman. Lost in her musings, Celeste spoke sparingly. The two women drove through the airport exit in silence. Celeste found herself in speculation about how a 20-year-old stripper look-alike could buy a $50,000 automobile. Once they were headed south on Route 95 towards Petersburg, Joanne attempted to break the ice. It worked, as if she knew exactly what to say. She asked Celeste to tell her everything about Donnie. Joanne listened with a high school girl's interest and chuckled believably at all the appropriate times. 
By the way, Jackson called one of his friends who owns the Days Inn Hotel in Petersburg. The guy did some time a couple of years ago. Anyway, he got us a room for the night if you can stay over. That way we can go visit again tomorrow. Celeste studied Joanne for a moment. That would be great. I can fly out anytime. I'm standby anyway. Joanne rambled on innocently. Then she quickly began to explain the do's and don'ts of the prison visiting room. Once they pulled into the parking lot of the admin building, the conversation ended as quickly as it began. Joanne parked, and the two hurried up the hill to the visitor's lobby. It was already 9.45, and she didn't want to get caught having to wait until the 10 o'clock count cleared. So as they trudged up the hill, Joanne breathlessly explained what all of that meant. She finished her explanation about the same time she huffed into the administration building. The guard knew Joanne and wasted no time calling for Jackson and Donnie. The two men were ready and waiting when their names were called for a visit. Chapter 37 Three weeks after Donnie's arrival at Petersburg, Frank Salvatore moved into his new offices at the district court building. His sense of elation couldn't be eclipsed by any feelings of remorse or inequity concerning Donnie. Besides, his timely request for reconsideration was summarily denied by the court. In the letter he sent Donnie, Frank advised him of the judge's decision, case closed. Nevertheless, he allowed himself one moment of sympathy as he replayed the incident of surprise when the judge rendered his sentence. That moment of reflection was interrupted by a new distraction, and the thoughts about Donnie evaporated. David Jones stepped into his office. Frank was immediately engaged by the conspiratorial smile that spread over David's face. Welcome aboard, Frankie, bellowed David with his hand extended. Frank was momentarily stricken. Nobody called him Frankie. Frank shot back as he reached for the outstretched hand. Thanks, Davy. We're going to start dating now that we have pet names for each other. David's expression changed dramatically. So you don't like Frankie? Jones asked sarcastically. The only person to call me Frankie was my morbidly obese doggy breath aunt, who used to hug me like a bear and mash my face into a mountainous double deep breast. So you don't have enough chest to call me Frankie. David Jones couldn't help but smile at the image. Okay, how about Squire Salvatore? He chuckled. How about Frank? Okay, okay, I really just wanted to see if I could buy you lunch on your first day. Let's not get all testy, spoke David placatingly. Frank raised his hands in mock surrender. Why'd you say that? Only you and Aunt Polly can call me Frankie. Let's go eat, Davy. I'm starved. The two men walked down the hall laughing at their own private jokes. David Jones had reservations at Joe's Bar and Grill on the waterfront, and while the seats weren't the greatest, Frank was impressed. A feeling of importance swept over him as the two were ushered through the crowded room to their table. While they waited for the server, David leaned forward and began to speak in a whispered tone. I'm expecting big things for us, Frank. David pushed the bread basket to the middle of the table, and the two men helped themselves to warm rolls. I've already heard from the U.S. Attorney's Office congratulating me on the Beck case. He was tickled to death that the case didn't go to trial, and he told me that the President's staff 
has already contacted him with the thanks for how it was handled. They're probably happy for not making a spectacle of the whole mess. I assured them we would do all we could to see that Beck gets some treatment for his drug problems while he's incarcerated. Good, that's great. Beck isn't a bad dude, and if you want to know the truth, I think the physician's assistant at the jail really did try to touch him sexually. I don't think Beck was lying for a minute. You're probably right. I'm just glad the case didn't go to trial. We pulled it off. David raised his water glass in a toast. Frank raised his glass in response. Fact is, it puts us on the map. Next step for me is going to be regional assistant to the deputy attorney general. I just need two or three more big cases, whispered David. What are you trying to do with your career? asked Frank. Do you know how it works? I'm sure you've already figured it out. David waggled his finger. Let's assume I didn't figure it out. Just tell me, and that way I'll be 100% sure we're on the same page. The men started speaking while the waiter served their prime rib and buttery twice-baked potatoes. Frank shifted his attention to food and prompted David to talk with a subtle wave of his fork. He was grateful to hear David's explanation. He thought he understood how the system worked, but he was not an insider, so he was glad for the confirmation. David chewed his prime rib around his words and launched into a rudimentary explanation of how the system worked. Look. Once a cop does his initial time writing speeding tickets and breaking up domestics, he moves up to crime. His job is to learn from the beginning to write tickets that don't go to trial, make busts that stick. So if you were a cop, you do what they do and work at high probability cases. You'd dog convicted felons for repeats or maybe even set them up because you know they're going to plead out without the probability of a messy trial. If the cop gets convictions that stick, they move up to detective, then sergeant, then lieutenant, and maybe even chief. The same is true for us. Keep your conviction rate up by dealing out pleas. Once you cut your teeth, move up to higher profile cases. Eventually, you'll be an assistant U.S. attorney, then an assistant to the deputy, then maybe attorney general. Alternately, you could opt towards politics or judgeship. If you're real ambitious, you can start taking out corporate CEOs, bankers, mobsters, or other high-profile cases. Then the sky's the limit. Do what you want. Be governor of New York, mayor of Boston, U.S. congressman, U.S. senator. If so, the road begins here. There are a group of us who are actually playing the system. We help each other. It's kind of like an informal fraternity. That's how the U.S. Attorney General found out about the Beck case. I didn't call him. One of my rabbis called him and put a bug in his ear. Another guy called a friend and leaked it to the newspapers. Another guy even whispered my name in the ear of the vice president. That's how the president's staff got involved in a conversation. When a position opens up in this region, they'll push me up, and I'm taking you with me, buddy. Frank set down his fork and watched David take a bite. Wow, I don't know what to say. Thanks, David. Save it, Frankie. There will be plenty of opportunities for that. First, you have to hold up your end. That means get convictions. Next month, I have a meeting with the governor's office. Supposedly, the plan is to liaise with the state prosecutor. However, I already know that the unspoken agenda is to introduce me to the GOP delegates who are screening possible candidates for the upcoming election for lieutenant governor. That, Frankie, is where I'm planning to go. Frank was flabbergasted. Well, Governor, I'll do everything I can to push you along. 
Yes, you will. Yes, you will, replied David. Chapter 38 In the final minutes of their last visit, Joanne reported to Jackson that she had succeeded in befriending Celeste. To reinforce the friendship, the two women had spoken numerous times over the succeeding two weeks, and Celeste coordinated a planned visit for the upcoming weekend. Jackson learned of the upcoming visit when he called, but didn't necessarily want Joanne to plan on coming. He needed to think. Nevertheless, he did instruct Joanne to arrange another hotel room for Celeste at the day's end. For the first time in a month, Jackson walked the track by himself. Chapter 39 Jackson struggled against an overwhelming sense of guilt for manipulating the relationship with Donnie. They'd grown close in a short period of time, and Jackson could tell Donnie trusted him explicitly. He had responded to the regimen of physical training. He had opened up concerning the hurt from his relationship with Stacy and shared genuine feelings of hope surrounding his affection for Celeste. It left Jackson in a quandary. He knew the only way to resolve the issue, and that was to come clean with Donnie and explain all of his plans and expectations, no matter the consequences. That weekend, Celeste came to visit by herself, and it was only for the day. On Sunday afternoon, when Donnie returned from the visiting room, he was distracted by his emotions and walking on clouds. Nevertheless, he could tell something was wrong with Jackson. His normally jovial demeanor was now pensive, and their conversation was a series of monosyllabic responses. When Donnie finally changed into his sweats and settled behind their small writing desk, he turned and caught Jackson's attention. You want to talk about it? Jackson studied Donnie's face, knowing full well that Donnie could read his distress. Yes, how about we hit the bleachers after count? Sure thing. Donnie knew it was serious if Jackson didn't want to go eat dinner or walk the track. At the furthest end of the compound, near the softball fields, the bleachers presented an even more isolated location than the track. As the count started, Donnie could feel a growing sense of dread settling over Jackson. He could also feel a sense of heaviness washing over himself as he pondered the possible topics of their discussion. He silently hoped this was not going to be some kind of weird confession he didn't want to hear. Even as he tried to ignore it, he couldn't shake the weight of what was coming. The trek to the softball field was peppered with superfluous conversation about Donnie's visit, questions about possible problems at the hotel, and other such nonsense. Donnie decided not to rush Jackson. He allowed the monologue to ramble. As soon as they settled into the bleachers, Donnie realized Jackson was struggling to express himself. I don't know where to begin. Jackson's brow was knit with torment. Donnie didn't speak. He waited silently, his face impassive, while Jackson collected his thought. The anguish in Jackson's eyes was almost too much to bear. Donnie, I had a plan to use you from the moment I found out you were coming to Petersburg. Jackson's eyes shifted away from Donnie's face. Donnie refused to respond or show any emotion. Instead, he kept a chilling, 
steely and disconcerted focus on Jackson. Donnie's ice blue eyes were almost too much for Jackson. He had to spit this out in a hurry. He knew Donnie's hardened stare was intended to protect him from pain and shut out emotion. Jackson recognized immediately that Donnie had shifted into sniper mode. He could almost feel his breathing and heartbeat slow to a crawl. I've been down now for six years and I'm 48 years old. I was sentenced to 324 months. That's 27 years if you're counting. In the best case, I'll do 23 years of my sentence. That means at the very least, I'll be 65 when I get out of here. I can't start over when I'm 65, Donnie. Donnie softened his stare for a split second and studied Jackson more carefully. This conversation wasn't making any sense, but Donnie realized Jackson was suddenly lowering his guard. The vulnerability in his voice was genuine, and it made Donnie want to pat Jackson's shoulder or find some way to encourage him to go on. Instead, he continued to sit stoically and listen. I was co-owner of a large international corporation. My partner and I started the company almost 15 years ago and built it quickly into one of the largest foreign currency trading operations in the world. My job was international marketing. Accordingly, I met with directors of major international conglomerates to convince them to allow us to balance their foreign exchange exposure. For example, let's say a U.S.-based bicycle manufacturer buys aluminum from France, gear mechanisms from Germany, leather seats and saddlebags from Argentina, and brake assemblies from Canada. The parts are collected and eventually shipped to where the bicycles are assembled, Mexico. Well, this particular business has multiple interest rate and currency exposures because they have to convert U.S. currency to pay their bills in a variety of other foreign currencies. Well, my partner invented a trading model that accurately predicted both the short-term and long-term directions of currency movements. Properly managed, that could mean a fortune in savings for the companies that have to transact currency exchange for international business, so I'm sure you get it. My job was to find the companies that could use our services and sign them up. My partner, Jim Clark, stayed in our New York office and traded the currencies by managing the model. Donnie started to interrupt, but Jackson held up a hand and continued. For three years, I lived out of a suitcase pitching our services and signing up major accounts with legitimate businesses. However, along the way, I met every major scam artist and con man in the world. See, when you're working with big money, it draws them like moths to a flame. Donnie nodded. Anyway, I avoided the constant pitches and those crooks like the plague until one day when I walked into this meeting in Barcelona with a group of Italian shipping facilitators. According to their website and all the information I had available, it appeared as if they served almost exclusively as booking agents for international import-export transit. Now I'm thinking I'll pitch them as prospective clients, and in all probability, I'll either sign them up or they'll refer me to their client companies. Instead, I found myself in the middle of something both crazy and illegal. They're not shipping facilitators. They're extortionists, muscling foreign companies into using their services or else. Worse yet, they were not Italians. 
they were Russian mafia, and they were not particularly interested in my business services. Instead, they insisted I set up a money laundering front for them to use foreign currency swaps so they can move illegitimate money in and out of the United States. Luckily, I was able to talk my way out of the meeting with the promise that I would look into how to facilitate such a transaction. Three weeks later, I learned that another company, one of our competitors, had jumped at the chance, so I never followed up. I used the experience to force myself to be more diligent about pre-meeting background investigations. Again, Donnie nodded, encouraging Jackson to continue. For the next several months, I remained far too busy to even think about the meeting in Barcelona. I was spending almost all of my time in Japan and Taiwan. Then, on one of my return trips from the Pacific Rim when I landed in San Francisco, I was arrested and transported to New York where I was indicted along with my partner for our participation in a $250 million money laundering scheme. We surrendered our passports, our assets were frozen, and we were released on personal recognizance. Donnie interjected, I thought your business was legit. So did I. In fact, when my attorney spoke to the U.S. attorney who was prosecuting our case, he said he wouldn't comment on the nature of the crimes except for those transactions specified in the indictment. Well, we were trading a billion dollars a day in foreign currency. Certainly, $250 million worth of transactions wasn't peculiar. When I explained that to my attorney, he went right back to the prosecutor, who suggested I might not be aware of the nature of those transactions, but suggested I discuss them with my partner. He told my attorney that if I cooperated against my partner, I could possibly reduce my time to 18 months. So after a meeting with my attorney, I naturally went right to my partner's house. When I asked him what he had done, he claimed he had done nothing. Like a fool, I believed him. Several months later, we went to trial. When the government put on its case is when I heard that our competitor, the one who had made the deal with the Russians, had set the swap transactions up through my partner. The guy, Bernard Revick, the competitor, came to pitch the idea to Jim, and he was apparently wearing a wire. According to the tape presented at trial, Jim agreed to knowingly launder the money. Revick was working the sting operation after he got caught, so he could reduce his potential sentence. That way the prosecutor could run up his conviction rate and make a name for himself at the same time. Thus Revick made a deal for his cooperation. He got one year at some federal prison camp. Last I heard, he was living somewhere in Switzerland. Donnie studied Jackson carefully. This is a little conspiratorial, isn't it? Look, Donnie, that's the way it works. Either you do the time or someone else does it. I got caught as a co-conspirator. Despite the fact I didn't know what was going on, the judge's position was that I should have known. My partner cried to the judge and begged him to let me go, but the judge thought it was a last-minute ploy. What did the jury say? That was our biggest mistake. There wasn't a jury. Our attorneys convinced us to go with a bench trial because of the complexity of the case. They felt we'd have a better shot convincing the judge without the burden of educating a jury about the intricacies of currency trading. 
obviously that was wrong. It put all the cards in the judge's hand, and he gave us no mercy. In retrospect, I've learned that both our attorneys, who were court-appointed, by the way, now work for the prosecutor's office. In reality, we probably got them their jobs. Court-appointed? Donnie was in shock. Why did you have court-appointed counsel? Donnie, they took every cent we had through a seizure order beforehand. Then, when we couldn't afford counsel, they provided a couple of pushovers. Don't you get it? That's how it works. Donnie momentarily lost focus, and his mind immediately began to sort and shift the details of his relationship with Frank Salvatore. He wondered where Frank was now. Gradually, he pulled himself back into the present. So what does this have to do with me? Jackson chewed on his lip for a moment. There's more I need to tell you. Donnie sat back on the seat a little further and waited. Jackson took a deep breath before he continued. After I was taken into custody, my family began to disintegrate. At first, everything was okay. I mean, my oldest daughter and her husband moved into the house with my wife to help take care of things, and that held everybody together for a while. You never told me you were married, challenged Donnie. I'm not now. However, when I came in, I'd been married for 24 years. My three daughters were then 22, 20, and 17. For the first two years, they all hung together and kept my wife above water. But during that two years, I noticed a change taking place whenever my wife came to visit. As best I can describe it, my wife started to drift away. None of the others really noticed because they saw her every day, but I couldn't help but see the changes. Like I said, they were gradual. Nevertheless, they were obvious to me. I saw the changes in installments every other week during the visits. First, she lost weight. Then there was a new hairstyle. Then manicures and new clothes and new jewelry. Didn't take a genius to realize she was changing for someone else and not for me. Then one Saturday, it was our anniversary. She came to visit early in the day. As we talked, nothing seemed to go right. She tried everything in her power to pick a fight about anything and everything we discussed. As a result, we only continued the visit for about an hour before she finally left in a huff. I kept calling to apologize for whatever I had said, but she didn't answer. When she didn't show up at home six hours later, a trip that shouldn't have taken more than two hours, my girls got worried and went out to look for her. She wasn't answering her cell phone, and she hadn't checked in with any of her friends. Unfortunately, my youngest, Jenny, was out riding around a nearby shopping center near our house when she spotted her Honda in the parking lot of a local restaurant. When Jenny pulled into the spot alongside her, she realized her mother was oblivious to her presence, but she wasn't alone. In fact, she was lost in an embrace with another man. Naturally, it devastated the girls and seriously fractured my family. Things went to hell in a handbasket from there. My wife, now my ex, is living with the guy. My kids don't talk to her. They've all moved away to far-flung parts of the country and I rarely even get letters. I guess it would be pretty fair to say this detour in my life has been pretty destructive. That's a terrible story, Jackson. I'm sorry. I'm not looking for your pity, Donnie. I need your help. Tell me what I can do. 
This time, Jackson returned the stare. He noticed Donnie's features had softened. First, let me tell you the rest of the story. See, one of the people I met when I got in here was Anton Capese. Eventually, he and I became very good friends. Initially, I helped him file legal briefs for an appeal and he showed me the ropes. He brought me whatever protection and luxuries I needed. After a while, I actually became immersed in his case. In no time at all, it was more than just a simple friendship. We became kindred spirits. Anton is in his mid-fifties. When he was on the street, he was a big player with the Teamsters Union. Now, well, he's been in for ten years, and he should have been starting his exit procedures a year ago based on his sentencing. However, shortly after I met him, some guy who worked for the people he worked for in New Jersey got arrested for murder. Guy started telling on people who gave him his orders, and during that process, Anton was named as a co-conspirator for murder. What are you telling me, Jackson? This Anton guy was with the mob or something? No, the guy who did the murder was with the mob, but Anton owned a trucking company that was pressed into service by the mob. He's no mobster. He was a successful working stiff. Then they told him he was going to haul stuff for them. I don't know if you're aware how that works. They don't ask you, they tell you. Yet that was neither here nor there. The guy who did the murder couldn't tell on real mobsters or they would have killed him and his whole family. So he picked a couple of guys who were already locked up and ratted them out. Anton was named as a collaborator and as a result picked up another 50 years. As a result of that, he was transferred to Hazleton. I was helping him with his legal work until they shipped him out. Jackson, this really isn't making any sense to me, interrupted Donnie. I know. I'm sorry, just hang with me for a few more minutes. I told you Anton and I grew close. In fact, his wife paid my kids college tuition. They paid for weddings and moving expenses for my two daughters. In truth, Anton's family has done everything for me, more than any man could even ask of a brother. For crying out loud, his daughter, Joanne, comes to see me whenever I call. She's like my own child. Donnie didn't say anything, but one of the mysteries he pondered was answered. The Joanne relationship now made sense. Jackson continued. In exchange, Anton has asked me for nothing. Now I want to help him. That's where you come in. I need to get out of here, and I need to help get Anton out of that maximum security prison in West Virginia. I need mercenaries. I need to learn how to shoot a sniper rifle. I need equipment. In other words, I need your Rolodex. Donnie knew he wasn't hiding his shock. He could feel his lower jaw go slack. You're kidding. Jackson only shook his head. Then what? Then you run for the rest of your life? Donnie, I don't have a life. When I'm 65, if I survive in here till then, my life will be gone. Anton was given a life sentence, too. I want to get him out. His wife and daughter are ready to do whatever we need. They have money. They've already purchased foreign documents, and they're ready to take Anton out of the country at a moment's notice. And you'll go along and abandon your family? No, I intend to start a war. 
I'm going to take down the crooked attorneys and prosecutors that destroyed my life for their own gain. I intend to kill them. I plan to lead a resistance against... Never mind. I don't suspect I'll live long enough for my family to miss me. Jackson's eyes turned to stone, and Donnie recognized the look on his face as the look of a sniper. I have no other reason to live. That's crazy. Donnie glared at Jackson in disgust. Jackson didn't blink. Is it? Think about it. Not right now. Take a couple of days. Maybe you can tell me how the system will change without a catalyst like I'm proposing. However, you know it won't. You only have to look at your own circumstances to realize there's no justice. I didn't deserve 27 years. Anton should not have been given 10 years, let alone another 50 years, and think about your own situation. Did you deserve nine years for defending yourself? Donnie was silent for a moment. Then he stood without speaking and headed back toward the dorm. Jackson knew the conversation wasn't over, but it was for tonight. Chapter 40 For the next several days, an uncomfortable silence hovered between Donnie and Jackson. That was difficult, but what pained Jackson the most was the distant and uncomfortable glances from Donnie that seemed to radiate shame and disdain. As much as he wanted to say something, Jackson resolved to give Donnie the time he needed to work through the revelation of his story. As a result, the two men maintained a pretty wide distance whenever possible. Jackson was more than a little surprised when Donnie's name was called for a visit on Friday evening. It seemed as if the hours Jackson sat alone in the cubicle they called their room were the longest and quietest hours of his life. Donnie returned from his visit shortly after nine o'clock. He sat at the desk in one of their plastic chairs and quietly prepared to climb onto his top bunk. The next morning he was up early and dressed quickly. It was obvious to Jackson that Donnie was headed for the weight pile. Jackson found his voice before Donnie could make it out the door. Need a spotter? Donnie stared back for a moment. The heaviness in his eyes was palpable. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. We need to talk. The comment twisted inside Jackson with a mixture of emotions. On the one hand, Donnie could rightly say he wanted to get as far away from Jackson as possible. On the other hand, Donnie might be offering him a chance to explain his goal a little more fully. Just give me five minutes. Jackson hurried into his sweats and made a quick detour to the bathroom. It was just before seven o'clock. They would have an hour on the weight pile, then go to breakfast at the dining hall and have to hustle back to the unit for the 10 o'clock weekend morning count. Jackson began to rehearse the things he wanted to say. After only a few seconds, he realized it was futile. He'd have to play it by ear. The weight pile was virtually empty at this hour in the morning. Only two other pairs of dedicated lifters were there but both teams were at the far end of the covered patio working on shoulders. The crisp, damp early morning made the air heavy, and the silence between Donnie and Jackson seemed to make things even more oppressive. They worked through their bench routine with very few words. The hour passed quickly, but it didn't change the intensity of the workout. One hour was just enough time to superset their routine. 
Afterwards, both Jackson and Donnie quietly collected their things, and even though they were physically depleted, they headed to the dining hall. They ate without talking. Got time for the bleachers? Donnie asked. Jackson checked his watch, then nodded. The two men carried their gear back to the dorm and signed out to the track. As they headed across the compound, the mood was still quiet and somber. Once they were situated on the upper bleachers, Donnie cleared his throat to speak. I asked Celeste to investigate what's become of Frank Salvatore. He was a public defender appointed to my case. After our conversation, I was curious to find out how close he is with this prosecutor, David Jones. I should have all of the information by next week. Last Tuesday, I was called to my case manager's office and served with a civil suit from the guy I supposedly paralyzed. They're seeking a $20 million summary judgment based on the criminal conviction. Jackson remained silent and watched Donnie carefully. Donnie stared across the field beyond the two fences. I'll never be able to pay $20 million. If I try to pay that kind of judgment, I'll never have anything for the rest of my life. They can't take your military pension, Donnie, and there are ways to work around the judgment. You just need a good attorney, offered Jackson. Donnie turned to study Jackson. For several seconds, he examined the man's eyes. That's exactly what I thought you'd say. In fact, that's what I told Celeste you would say. Is that wrong? Did I say something wrong? Jackson was genuinely out of sorts. No, it's not that. I told Celeste I was going to talk to you about the civil suit. I said if you used it to try and manipulate me to do your bidding, then I know you're only trying to use me for your own purposes. However, I knew you'd say just what you said to me. It's like I heard it inside my head before I even asked the question. I believed then, and I believe now, that you are more concerned about me than about your own plans. Donnie, I wasn't trying to play you. I admitted that in the beginning it was my plan. However, once I got to know you, I couldn't do it. I care for you. You're like my son, and there's no way I could hurt you even to help Anton. I know. I just need to work things out of my head. Did you? Did you work things out? Not really. I mean, I worked things out about us, and I can't be angry with you for wanting vengeance. I'd probably feel the same way. In fact, in many ways, I do feel the same way. Yet I want to try and talk you out of your plan. There has to be a legal channel we can take. Maybe a newspaper, a movie star, or some big law firm that could help. Donnie, do you think I haven't thought through every option, written to everyone I could think of, and filed every possible motion? I'm a better criminal attorney now than 95% of the guys out there practicing law. I've gone through the appellate process and the habeas process. I filed for a writ of certiorari from the Supreme Court on both my cases and Anton's case. The issues are not going to be heard. It's a dead end. We're both going to be sacrificed for the rest of our lives by a corrupt system that will not change unless somebody forces change upon it. It's not right. In plain English, it's injustice. The same kind of injustice and tyranny that led our forefathers to declare war against England. It's the kind of oppression that made farmers beat plowshares into swords. And it's the kind of oppression and injustice I'm willing to sacrifice my own life to defeat. I can't live like this. 
so maybe I can die for something that's worthwhile. Jackson, please listen. You sound like a madman. Donnie's face was etched with pain and concern. Can you imagine how it sounded to this country's farmers when the First Continental Congress in 1776 declared independence from England and told the American colonists to prepare for war? It's never an easy message to embrace. During the Civil Rights Movement in the mid-1960s, black people were being hosed down by police for unlawful public assembly. When they refused to disband, some police put attack dogs on them. Finally, in response to that kind of hostility, Huey Newton and Bobby Seals formed the Black Panther Party and launched a militant response. J. Edgar Hoover, who was then director of the FBI, described the Black Panthers as the single largest threat to the nation's internal security. As a result of that threat, the government was forced to either deal with Martin Luther King and his ilk or deal with Newton and Seals. Dealing with the latter would have ultimately resulted in civil war, black versus white. So in reality, it was the Black Panthers that brought the white supremacists to the bargaining table. They were willing to die to change things because in their estimation, it was the only way to invoke change. I'm not asking you to join me. I'm asking you to help me find mercenaries who will help me get out of here so I can start a revolution. I'm asking you to teach me to be a commando. I'm asking you to prepare me for battle. But I'm not asking you to join the fight or become a martyr for my cause. I just need your help. Donnie studied Jackson's face again for several long seconds. Then he gently reached forward and laid his hand on the older man's shoulder and lightly squeezed. I don't know if I can do that. Let me think about it some more. That's all I ask. Just think about it. Chapter 41 The next few days seemed almost worry-free compared to the two preceding weeks, regardless of the fact that the issues of Donnie's involvement in Jackson's plan was still unresolved. Neither man talked again about the plan or Jackson's request. By tacit agreement, there was an obvious increased intensity in their daily workouts. It was almost as if the two men had silently agreed to prepare their bodies for a contest. Both men seemed relieved by the fact that the issue was in the open and their comfortable conversation and easy banner returned. The fact they didn't talk about it seemed to take the edge off the seriousness of the matter. On Thursday, just before the four o'clock count, Donnie told Jackson to dress for a visit. What are you talking about? Yesterday I had Celeste call Joanne. They're coming tonight to visit. Well, why? What's going on? What does jo why does Joanne have to be involved? Donnie's eyes flashed hard for a second. Look, Jackson, Celeste is coming to tell me what she discovered during her investigation of my attorney. I also had her look into your case and Anton's. I'm not even thinking about going into this deal while I'm in the blind. Furthermore, Celeste is only gathering data. If anyone is going to contact Merckx, it's going to be Joanne. I don't want Celeste mixed up in this at all. She doesn't have a dog in the fight. You're right. I didn't even think about that. You just caught me off guard. 
That's lesson number one. Anticipate every eventuality. Prepare for surprises and don't get caught off guard. Jackson's eyes sparkled playfully. Sir, yes, sir. The two men were ready when called for their visit at 445. Chapter 42 When Donnie and Jackson entered the visiting room, Donnie immediately noticed that Celeste looked both tense and anxious. She fidgeted nervously with her fingers. Her eyes darted maniacally at everything and everyone but Donnie, Jackson, or Joanne. The men hurried to the table in the front of the visiting room, where the men offered abbreviated hugs and sat quickly. Celeste remained standing, her eyes still drifting around the room. Celeste, please smile at Donnie and sit. Jackson breathed in a soft whisper. Celeste responded immediately and took her seat next to Joanne. Jackson's face was plastered with a friendly smile, and he spoke softly, looking deeply into Joanne's eyes. However, his conversation was directed at Celeste. Sorry to be so aggressive, but you look like you're doing something wrong. If you act scared or nervous, even these half-wits will think something's going on. Please, relax. Breathe in and out a couple of times and take it easy. Whatever you learned about me or Anton isn't anything Joanne or I haven't heard before or read in the newspapers or charging documents. Jackson glanced at Celeste and smiled warmly. Thanks for coming and thanks for doing the background work. Now look at Donnie and tell him what you found. Ignore Joanne and me. Just talk to Donnie. Jackson reached slowly across the small table and gently took Joanne's hand in his own. Thanks for coming, Joe. How's your mom? Joanne just nodded. Jackson diverted his eyes quickly to Donnie and exchanged a knowing look. There's no news. That's not what this is about. We're here to listen to Celeste. She did some background about me and your dad for Donnie. Let's just listen. However, you keep your eyes on me. Don't let the COs know that we're having a four-way conversation. Jackson turned back to Celeste. Go ahead, darling. And please, don't sugarcoat anything. Jackson leaned forward and refocused his attention on Joanne, pretending to listen to some feigned conversation. Donnie smiled at Celeste, who was noticeably more at ease. She returned his gaze. Celeste, go ahead. Pretend there's nobody here but you and me. Donnie's voice was soft and intimate. Donnie, your attorney... Frank Salvatore just got a job as an assistant to the U.S. Attorney in the Boston District. I went online and found him on a social website. One of the girls on his list is the secretary in the prosecutor's office. A girl on her friend's list is one of the stews I've worked with in Boston. So on Tuesday, when I was at Logan, I called my friend and asked her to introduce us over dinner. Donnie frowned, wondering if the connection was going to be a potential problem. He didn't interrupt, but stored the information away in the back of his mind. Celeste plowed ahead without even discerning the change in Donnie's expression. Uh, the secretary's name is Janice Blackstock. She's been there for about three years. Once I got her talking about her work over burgers at Chili's, she didn't stop talking until about 11.30. I asked her about her interesting cases and kind of steered her to talk about you. 
She volunteered that your case got her boss, David Jones, promoted and got your attorney, Salvatore, a cherry job in the prosecutor's office. In short, she doesn't care for your guy. She thinks he's greasy. Yeah, I can't say I disagree. Donnie's expression was still unreadable. What about Jackson and Anton? Celeste looked sideways at Jackson. Look at me, Celeste. Talk to me. Celeste took a deep breath and pushed ahead. Jackson was a named co-defendant in a multi-count conspiracy indictment for money laundering, wire fraud, and tax fraud. He was sentenced to 324 months for his role in the conspiracy. According to the information I pulled off the findlaw.com website, he and his partner filed several motions. One of the motions argued against forfeiture and seizure of assets prior to trial and the subsequent appointment of ineffective counsel. In all, the defense filed 14 motions. All of them were denied. Court documents indicate six witnesses testified for the prosecution about improper tax avoidance advice provided by Jackson's company. All of the witnesses were facing charges in federal court for the illegal use of offshore tax shelters that were recommended by one of the big three accounting firms, which, according to court documents, were not properly recorded with the IRS. The defense offered testimony from eight other institutional money management clients who claimed there was no impropriety concerning their accounts and no advice was provided that was contrary to banking, currency, or tax law. In the end, the prosecution introduced a series of wire transfers and a key witness with admitted ties to the Russian mafia. According to his testimony, the company, through its principal officer, James Clark, laundered $250 million. The Russian mafioso, in connection with another guy named Revik or Restik, something like that, claimed to have met several months earlier with Jackson and operated under the assumption Jackson was fully aware of that transaction. The court records noted Jackson's denial of any knowledge and his final motion for severance of the case from his partner. As I already said, the motion was denied. The rest of the case is concentrated on the sentencing phase. According to the record, there were more than 300 letters written on Jackson's behalf requesting leniency. There was a citation from the County Welfare and Social Services Office commending him for 15 years of service as a foster parent for more than 30 children. There were letters from his pastor, church members, and a couple of prominent politicians. Celeste shifted her glance toward Jackson. Some of the things they said were very kind. Then I found a four-year-old petition for divorce filed by his wife. That was the end of the legal filings. I did a newspaper search and discovered a wedding announcement for one daughter dated about one year after the divorce paperwork. Eighteen months ago, there was an announcement for another marriage of another daughter. I was a bridesmaid in the last one. Joanne whispered. Her face colored with embarrassment, and Jackson reached over and took her hand. She was the prettiest bridesmaid. However, I was kind of partial to the bride. Jackson said in an effort to soothe her discomfort. Joanne giggled uncomfortably. Did you find out what became of the prosecutor and court-appointed counsel in my case? Jackson asked Celeste. The prosecutor was appointed as a federal district judge. The court-appointed counsel is running for Congress in the upcoming election with the endorsement of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and a dozen prominent Republican judges and prosecutors. He is expected to win by a significant margin.
Celeste stated matter-of-factly. She smiled uncomfortably and continued. Anton Capese was indicted about 10 years ago for interstate transportation stolen merchandise. Acting on behalf of a known racketeer-influenced criminal organization, he pled guilty to a single account and was sentenced to 10 years. About six years ago, he was named as a co-conspirator in the murder of a former competitor. The man who allegedly conspired with Capese was arrested for multiple murders. As a part of the complicated plea deal, he gave up 26 members of the New Jersey Crime Syndicate in exchange for a free walk. 20 of the 26 were already in prison for one thing or another. Every single person was convicted on the strength of the guy's testimony. However, to a man, they denied either knowing him or working with him in any way. Capese testified in the case and denied having a relationship of any kind with a man. According to his assertions, Capese was unaware of how his contemporaries were dealt with if they refused to cooperate, but he claimed to have heard stories that several had been killed. The person Capese allegedly murdered was actually one of his competitors. However, the man's widow testified on behalf of Capese and stated under oath that her husband had been propositioned to drive for the mob. According to his widow, when he refused, he disappeared. The woman claimed to have known Capese from her church. According to her testimony, their daughters played together and she couldn't imagine Anton hurting her husband. Joanne sniffled and everyone looked in her direction. Her cheeks were tear-stained and she studied the others. Her discomfort was evident. That was Maria Campanella's father. They were such good people. Joanne's chin dropped to her chest and she struggled to regain her composure. Celeste continued. That's it. Capese was convicted and his case is on appeal. His family moved from Jersey to Virginia Beach to be close to him at Petersburg. The Bureau of Prisons website has him in West Virginia at a new facility, Hazleton Penitentiary. There was a general heaviness at the table and except for the soft rumble of 50 or 60 other conversations, the room seemed surrealistically quiet. Jackson was the first to break the silence. Celeste, do you have to go home tonight? No, I don't have another flight until Saturday afternoon. Would you go home with Joanne tonight? Then, without waiting for her reply, he looked into Joanne's eyes. You and your mother tell her everything. I'll tell Donnie. Then maybe you can come back tomorrow night, and that way she'll have all the information. Joanne nodded. Well, is that what you want me to do? Celeste asked Donnie. If you can, it would be a great help. Right now, I need all the information I can get. We will be back tomorrow, then. Celeste rose to leave, and the others quickly followed suit. Donnie and Jackson watched as the two women moved toward the guard station at the exit. The two men moved in the opposite direction toward the shakedown room and their inevitable strip search. Chapter 43 On Friday night, there were at least 50 more people in the visiting room than the night before. Consequently, the general volume of conversation was much higher, and the attention of the two correctional officers tasked with watching things was considerably reduced. As a result, the conversation between the 
the quartet of Donnie, Jackson, Joanne, and Celeste seemed less restrictive. It only took Celeste an hour to recap her late-night exchange with Anton's wife, Maria. The mountains of research Maria assembled and the countless boxes of evidence and discovery that filled the small dining room of her townhouse was overwhelming. Even today, 16 hours after their visit, Celeste could still smell the aroma of musty paper boxes and see the mountains of documents in her mind's eye. She could see the frail, ashen face of the petite Italian woman, carefully scanning file after file and finding nugget after nugget of falsified evidence used by the U.S. prosecutor and his witnesses to convict her husband of 33 years to a life sentence in prison. The old woman's anguish kept Celeste awake through the night. All day long, she had been unable to get it out of her mind. Now her body was trembling in part from what she had learned and in part from anger and exhaustion. Celeste finished her summary for Donnie and waited. Now an uncomfortable silence was hovering between them like a silent executioner. Donnie, can I talk to you alone for a minute? She asked nervously. Donnie rose and led Celeste to a table at the far side of the room. He positioned Celeste so her back was to Joanne and Jackson. The seriousness in her voice was something Donnie had never heard before. She leaned across the table and spoke in a low, resolute voice. You're not really thinking about trying to help Jackson break this guy out of prison, are you? Celeste's body was shaking. Her hands trembled almost uncontrollably. Celeste, honey, please relax. I'm not going to get involved and neither are you. If anything, I'm going to give Jackson a list of names. He will give them to Joanne and she will make all the contacts. If they can find someone to help them, then God bless them. However, neither you nor I are going to get involved. Donnie was trying to speak reassuringly. Please don't get mixed up in this. People could get killed. No, people will get killed. These, these friends of yours are like the zealot militia. The old woman was talking about funding a revolution from outside the United States. It's like she was recruiting me. Donnie, they're all going to get themselves killed. Her tears streamed freely down her cheeks. Celeste, remember when I told you about me and Dak being put out of the Marines? She nodded. It was like the two of us were lost. They took the only things we loved. It was the only thing we could do better than anyone else in the world, and they took it from us. I can only speak for myself, but for the longest time, I wanted to die. I couldn't imagine living without the things that defined me. Now I can't imagine living without you. I love you more than any of those things in my past, anything in my present, or anything in my future. You define me. Not any of those other things. Not anymore. Anton is defined by his wife and daughter. There is reason to continue the fight to live. They give him hope for the future. Jackson has nothing anymore except for vengeance and a sense of right. Celeste was nodding as though she understood. However, tears continued to spill from her eyes. Donnie continued. Jackson is my friend. He will die here. Anton will die in West Virginia. Those things are real. If they didn't deserve the penalties they received because the system screwed them, and if I can give them a chance to, to even the playing field, I have to try. However, I promise you, 
I have no intention of crossing the line to get into this battle. I intend to do only one thing, and that is to prepare Jackson to lead the troops. I want to give him that. You need to stay away from Joanne and her mother from now on. From this point forward, it's best if you aren't involved. Celeste let the words wash over her. There was an immediate relief that settled her stomach. Donnie watched as his words took effect. Slowly, he helped her stand so they could rejoin Jackson and Joanne. Yet when Donnie searched the other side of the room, Jackson and Joanne were gone. They obviously ended their visit. Donnie spent the remainder of the visit reassuring and comforting Celeste. When she finally left, almost everyone else had vacated the visiting room. She was confident Donnie would distance himself from whatever plans Jackson wanted to implement, and she left much lighter than when she had arrived. Chapter 44 Celeste drove on autopilot as she headed north on Interstate 95. She was passing one of the Fredericksburg exits when she realized she hadn't thought of anything except Maria Gelati Capese's horrific tale of government conspiracy and the prosecution for personal advancement by the U.S. Attorney's Office. She was definitely going to do more research. Nevertheless, her concerns were significantly dampened by the reassurance that Donnie wasn't going to get involved. Yet deep inside, where only she could hear the whisper, she knew Donnie was getting involved. She knew it because the whisper was a quotation she remembered from long ago, though she couldn't place it. Evil prevails when good people do nothing. Donnie was one of those who could not idly stand by and do nothing. That's probably why Celeste cared so much for him. If he could have walked away from danger, the whole mess would have never happened. Then she wouldn't have ended up beside his hospital bed. She wouldn't have fallen in love. Donnie would do the right thing. Celeste prayed they could both avoid negative consequences. In her heart of hearts, she waited for the other shoe to drop, not believing she could avoid getting embroiled in this business for a second. Chapter 45 After Celeste signed out and left the visiting room, Donnie began the exit and strip search procedures. For the first time since his incarceration, he merely put the indignity of it out of his mind. As he went through the motions, Donnie was preoccupied with a thousand thoughts about what he'd learned. He analyzed the data from every possible angle, and no matter how he couched the facts, they still indicated some elements of a conspiracy he really didn't want to acknowledge. As he crossed the compound to his dorm, his mind cycled over and over again through the details, moving like a computer at many miles per second. Inside the semi-darkened dormitory room, Jackson was lying quietly on top of his blankets, either asleep or lost in his own reflections. Donnie silently slipped out of his clothes and climbed onto the top bunk. He was unable to clear his mind and fall asleep until well after both the 10 o'clock and 12 o'clock counts. As Donnie lay still and distracted by his thoughts, Jackson stirred restlessly on the bottom bunk. In the early morning when people began stirring in the unit, Donnie and Jackson awoke. They both looked tired and distracted as they dressed and made their way to breakfast. 
by silent agreement, they skipped their weightlifting regimen and went straight to the track after Chow. The leisurely walk seemed to relax them both. As soon as they were on the track and alone, Donnie exploded with pent-up questions. So why you? How come you get to be the martyr? Why Capese? What does he have to do with any of this? And what if you're wrong? His challenging tone increased in volume and intensity as he rattled the questions off one by one. Jackson eyed Donnie calmly as they continued around the track. I'm not wrong, Donnie, and you know it. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you ever heard of the Booker or Blakely cases? Donnie shook his head to reinforce his answer. Well, Blakely, the first case, took place in Washington State. It involved a man's abduction of his estranged wife at night point. After his arrest and in the course of the trial, Blakely was found guilty based on the facts and testimony. However, during the subsequent sentencing, the judge used the guidelines, which are patterned after the U.S. federal guidelines, to sentence Blakely to the maximum penalty. I believe that was eight years. Then, independent of the jury, the judge unilaterally decided the crime was so egregious he further enhanced Blakely's sentence by adding on a host of modifications that boosted Blakely to a 20-year term. In the Booker case, Booker, a repeat offender, was arrested for possession of crack cocaine. He pled guilty based on his attorney's conversation with the prosecutor and their mutual expectation of a 10-year sentence. Then independent of that plea and independent of the information contained in the indictment, the judge unilaterally decided to attribute more drugs than the amount included in the plea as relevant conduct and ultimately enhanced Booker for his criminal history. That was not information Booker was privy to when he made his decision to plead guilty. So just like with Blakely, the judge took liberties he shouldn't have taken. So what's that? Donnie began to question. Jackson raised a hand to silence him. Donnie, those cases went to the Supreme Court and they were reversed based upon the abuses of the court in the use of the sentencing guidelines. This was not merely a decision as to the abuses of the court, but the entirety of the sentencing guidelines and its improper enhancements were ultimately rendered unconstitutional. Nevertheless, it doesn't change the fact that the government and the court has been crossing the line since the guidelines have been in effect. In other words, since 1986. Now think about it. If the guidelines and enhancements are now unconstitutional, they were always unconstitutional. If the court sentenced according to the guidelines and enhanced any cases, they were acting outside the bounds of the law. The courts didn't have jurisdiction to render the sentences. Very simply, if the courts didn't have jurisdiction then anyone sentenced and enhanced under the guidelines is being held illegally. Yet the system is seriously dragging its feet in responding to the issue. They're wrong and they know it. However, since 1986, a complex system of police enforcement, investigators, agents, prosecutors, marshals, clerks, court officials, judges, and prison officials has emerged to enforce what they know was an illegal response to what has been a growing drug and crime problem. Now, nobody wants to have to take responsibility and admit they've done it wrong. Why should they? 
jailed animals like us don't have a voice. We get bogged down by a system of technicalities and procedures that wears down the best legal minds in the business. Donnie, once you're inside, you don't have a prayer. The deck is stacked against you like no game on the planet. Once you're inside, you're inside. So what's that got to do with any of the Capese issues? I was enhanced, Donnie. Your sentence was enhanced. We were both sentenced illegally. Capese was enhanced and sentenced as a co-conspirator without any hard evidence. Ask anybody in here. Most of them will admit they deserve jail time. But by and large, they're doing time for things that were merely attributed to them, not for things they were ever caught doing. The system is broken and nobody cares enough to do anything about it. What, so that means you should launch a one-man crusade? If not me, then who? Who, Donnie? Who's going to take on the system? Do you think some idealistic law school grad is going to pass on his $200,000 per year salary to take up the plight of the poor, incarcerated masses? No, they're not. Nobody's coming to help us. Nobody. So why not me? I never wanted to be the weekend destination for my children. And I'm certain they brag about their daddy, the convict, at every chance they get. I don't want to be the subject of ridicule for my grandchildren. Because granddad can't be there. He lives behind a razor wire fence. I want to die with honor and be remembered as, as a committed patriot, even a zealot. Maybe even named with Huey Newton and Bobby Seale as another revolutionary demanding change. I just don't want to die here. Jackson's voice had turned almost pleading, and Donnie's challenge weakened and died on his lips. Capese will give me two million in cash if I get him out of prison, plus reimburse any of my expenses. In addition, he has a network of contacts around the world through, shall we say, wealthy Italian businessmen who will help me if I'm leading a fight against the government. Revolution makes for peculiar allegiances. However, I don't see anyone else jumping up to help. I guess it's kind of like Russia becoming a U.S. ally in World War II. They weren't our friends, and we didn't even like the way they did things, but we were both Germany's enemies. Donnie was suddenly very quiet. As he walked, he chewed thoughtfully on his lower lip. Jackson held his tongue while Donnie wrestled with the issues. Jackson, I'm not 100% behind this, and I still have more things I need to look into before I commit my Rolodex to your mission. However, I'm willing to teach you what I know. Later, we'll figure out if this goes to the next step. Fair enough. Jackson's eyes sparkled with renewed peace. When do we begin? A smile creased his face. Right now? Donnie took off at a fast jog. Forty laps. Keep up, old man. The two men strode shoulder to shoulder, silently focused on breathing, and each lost in his own thoughts.